0: Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Um, the sheet which you have in front of you is, uh, at least I think now all of you have in front of you, it uh, dovetails with and complements the uh, uh, note uh, material that we would be on page 10 if you're following there as well. But uh, let me introduce you uh, to uh, this chapter and review a couple of things uh, because about half of you weren't here last week, so I think it'll be valuable to do that. Chapter 7 is an important dividing point in the book, uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. The first four chapters deal with the division issue. They were divided and and so on. We've talked a lot about that. second part is chapters 5 and 6, which deals with three internal disorders in the church. Chapter 7 through the end, chapter 16, uh, deal with, as far as we can determine, a series of questions. Questions that they ask Paul. These uh, questions were presumably in writing. They were delivered to him by the three men uh, who are mentioned in chapter 16, who are visiting Paul in Ephesus. If you remember, he's way over in Ephesus. And uh, they give him, again... A list or a series of questions, and he answers them. Now, what we have is the answer; we don't have the question. So it's a little bit like Jeopardy. You have the answer, and you have to give the question. So it's not quite as because usually it's very simple in Jeopardy. It's just sometimes you forget to have that tone of voice that sounds like a question. But anyway, here you really have to try to figure out what is the question that Paul's answering. So chapter seven, which is what we're beginning to study deals with a series of questions on sexuality, marriage, and related issues like that. And um, I think, I'm not willing to say 100%, but I think we're pretty certain what the questions were. So this handout reflects a summary of what the questions more than likely were. And the first one, which I think we are roughly halfway through his answer, which is the first seven verses, um, was something like this. Are married couples to continue normal sexual relations after conversion? Now, uh, I'm not going to write all this up on the board again, but if you can remember um, from one of our previous classes, and if you were here last week, that question that they must have asked him reflects this dualistic worldview, this dualistic idea. The body is evil, the spirit is good. The immaterial is, is, uh, is good, is righteous, is perfect. The material is not. And so apparently there were some people um, in Corinth that were saying, you know, now that we've come to faith, uh, we, we really have got to deny the body, which is evil. We've got to deny it in or self-denial, an ascetic lifestyle is the way to go, which means even if you're married, celibacy is the call of God on our lives. So that's kind of what's in back of this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It has to be what's in back of this, because otherwise it doesn't make sense. We know that uh, they were Greco-Roman people, and we know that would have been this dualistic idea pretty central to how they looked at things. So Paul Paul responds in, in, in a way that I think is absolutely masterful. And last week what we did in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4 are three principles that are central to understanding a God-centered marriage. A principle of mutual rights, verse 2. A principle of mutual duty, verse 3. And a principle of mutual authority, verse 4. We looked at all three of those. And uh, I won't repeat all that we said, but if you look real quickly at verse 2, because of immorality, each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Have is a euphemism, if you will, for sexual intercourse. That's a very common way it's described in the New Testament. But I want you to notice that Paul mentions both the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. It's not just for the man. That dimension, that intimacy dimension of marriage is not only for the husband. Second, is uh, he uses the word duty. It's an ethical word. It's a, it's a word, let each man fulfill his duty. Like also, Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The duty, the obligation. You say, I do. You have that duty to fulfill the sexual needs of your partner. And again, it is not only for the husband. And then fourth, uh, thirdly, verse 4, the principle of mutual authority. Paul uses that word. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. I want to, we did not finish this last week, uh, verse 4, the third principle, so I want to kind of pick up there. Now, is everybody with me? Do you understand what we're doing? Yeah. Is
1: have in the biblical sense, is that the same word that's used earlier in the pejorative? Of-
0: yes, yes, in, in the negative sense in, the, in chapter 6. Yes, exactly. All right, let's think a little more about this issue of mutual authority. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The verb changes there. It literally is they will now be in the process of becoming one flesh. So the rest of your life, and again following that model of the creation ordinance of God, you are in that process of becoming one flesh. And that means there's an awful lot to that when you start to think about it. Obviously, obviously, the one flesh principle is symbolized and at the center of it is the sexual union of a man and a woman. But it is much more than that. It is two totally different individuals with their own unique idiosyncrasies and everything coming together so that they're... they're Parts uh, that uh, define them as a man and a woman, but all those unique emotional and psychological, left brain, right brain, physical differences, when they come together, it's a perfect complementary whole. You're so much stronger together than if you remained apart. But for the rest of your life, that oneness is deepened. And it isn't only, it is primarily, but it isn't only the sexual dimension. It's in every way. I've been married to my wife for 44 and a half years. I'm now just just on the cusp of beginning to understand her. Because it is just, it is. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 7, men seek to understand your wives. But the more I do, the more I understand the enormity of that grace of God in giving me Peggy. I'm beginning to understand the strength of oneness. And so all of that is in back of this idea of mutual authority. I care about her deeply. I care about her physical health. She has a heart condition and an autoimmune disease. That affects everything we do. So my mutual authority over her body is I now have to be a part of caring for her. That affects everything we do. We travel to see our son and his wife in England. That is a huge enterprise for us. I'm leaving for Israel in a couple of days. She can't go with me because of her physical condition. I'm saying all that because it extends into all of the things that are, are a part of the emotional stability of a man and a woman you learn where are the emotional weaknesses and strengths of your partner it affects diet needing habit my wife is constantly a source of encouragement for that horrific daily exercise of mine of going to the fitness center and i see dave over there quite frequently i wish i could tell you i enjoyed it not not really <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy the exercise, I feel good, I, you know, all that stuff. But if you, because I've seen him over there too. If you think I enjoy lifting the weights and pumping stuff and on the elliptical, no. But anyway, that's not my point. My point is my wife is encouraging me in that area constantly. Because my body is her body. Her body, do you understand? That's what's involved here. It isn't only the mutual authority over one another's body in the sexual dimension of the intimacy of the marriage bed. It is much deeper and much broader than that. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that is really, uh, and a couple of you have questions, but just let me really stress that. That is something that I don't believe we teach enough about this you see, that is one of the reasons why you cannot treat marriage as a superficial, shallow, it's all about me. If that's the approach, that marriage is not going to last. Or it's going to be one of the most miserable marriages on planet Earth. It's all about mutuality. And it's, it's just it's a profound thought that my wife has as much authority over my body as I do because we're one all the unique differences remain but we're one
2: well and don't you consider that to be a privilege and I mean a, a blessing of uh, being a part of that to, I mean you don't like pumping iron and I don't necessarily it to my wife and I do the same thing, but <clears throat> it's, it's such a blessing I don't know I, I just feel like I'm growing outside of myself when I, mm-hmm. I cater to her mm-hmm. and think about her uh, because mm-hmm. she is me, and I am um, her. In, in the hospital,
0: and I know that,
2: like he mentioned, this two of one, mm-hmm. and uh, he's still going through it, and she's gone through it. Yeah. And it's, but it's an
0: opportunity to share life. Absolutely. You, know, you share life and share all of its ups and downs and everything together alright now I want to go to verse 5 through 7 which concludes this But are, do you have any additional thoughts or comments mutual rights, mutual duty, mutual authority that's marriage well, I meant to say that, isn't that is a dimension of marriage that is uh, quite important when I do my, and I, like, I think I mentioned I don't do as much of this as I used to, but when I do premarital counseling, I spend, uh, I spend a whole session on these three verses because I think they are so foundational for a proper understanding from the biblical perspective of intimacy, of what that, what, what that really means. And it's, I, I then connect that with this matter of becoming one flesh um, it takes time for a young couple to be able to at- attain a level of maturity in the sexual dimension of their relationship. Because and there are, I mean, I don't need to go into those reasons, but it's just—it's something that is a part of that growth and learning and being patient with one another. I have my uh, counselors always read. Dr. Ed Wheat's magnificent book, Intended for Pleasure. Wheat is a medical doctor who is also a a devout Christian. And it's a fabulous book for young people particularly, but actually I've had several, I shouldn't say elderly, older couples. I I did their wedding uh, uh, last year and they were both in their upper 50s because both of their spouses had died. And so I had them read that and they both came back to me and said, and they've both been married, and they're getting. And they, we learn things there we never knew. I mean, it's okay. I mean, that's really interesting. But it's just, it's it's important to give young couples that are getting married, but anybody for that matter, a real perspective on why God created us differently. And He goes through in the early chapters all the physical differences between a man and a woman, and the next section all the emotional and psychological differences. And all of that, and only then does he start to focus on how God views the sexual dimension of marriage. Because if we are to maximize to God's glory what the one flesh principle means, the strong inference there is, I better understand my partner. I better understand what she or he's like. I,
1: this is the first time that I've you know heard of the becoming one flesh. i always... Um, read that or saw that even digging deeper into the text as it's in the past tense <clears throat> we got married, we became one flesh he knew her done over with, she knew him you know I've. is this the best book that really brings out that
3: uh, concept Because this, this is new
0: ground you, you use your modifier the best book, I don't know about that uh, yeah, i mean it's it 's a very good book now wheat is focusing a lot on the uh on the physical and emotional differences, and then all of that dealing then with the sexual dimension as is biblically uh, presented in scripture
1: and we've done quite a bit of that i what i 'm really interested in is digging in without taking your time here into that sure into that concept because that's a new ground
0: sure yeah. One of the uh, one of the best books, exegetically speaking, uh, on Genesis in particular, is uh, by a man named Alan Ross R O S S. Uh, it's called uh, Creation and Blessing, and it's a it's a big thick thing. But it's a it's I studied under him. He's one of the uh, most renowned Hebrew scholars in the United States, and he's written the Hebrew grammar, Hebrew lexicon, all that stuff. But he is—it's really good. He has some good insights there on his material in chapter uh, two. I don't mean it's his chapter. It's, I know it's about chapter eight, but it's the one on Genesis two. He's a lot of introductory stuff on in Genesis, but that is a—that uh, is a very, very, very significant chapter for us as Christians. Chapter two of Genesis. It is my church. Uh, you know, some of you know I'm involved in a church plant, uh, part-time staff there. Uh, lead pastors asked me in January to do a series on Genesis one through eleven. Because I don't know if you realize some of this, but a lot of the the, the critics regard Genesis one through eleven as myth.
3: Yeah. It's
0: just stories. Yeah. History doesn't begin until chapter twelve with Abraham. It's just introductory stuff. But it's not presented that way of course. It's presented as history. It's presented as valid. Uh, that there is a literal creation by a literal, real God, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I, I haven't done that for a long time to really present those first 11 chapters as historic and, and verifiable and foundational to our faith. That God is creator is as important in terms of the Bible, and how, I mean by that I mean how God's presented as God is Savior, they're they are they're extremely both they're linked because if God is creator then God has the right to call us to accountability to his standards because he created us and he created the standards and when those standards are violated God could either well chuck the whole project forget it I'm not going to do this anymore or try to redeem and I mean of course you know what choice you make so that's why Ross calls it creation and blessing. So it's, I mean, it's not easy to read because it's heavily exegetical, but I think you'll, anyway.
1: Do you, do you use, um, yeah. draw upon Nachmanides for that, and you draw upon his example um, where he, he proves a ten-dimensional universe out of the first three chapters of Genesis?
0: I don't know if, <laughs> I am familiar with that, but I don't know if, I, I, I'm not as smart as he is to whether I can deduce all of that from those chapters. But it's, it's intriguing. It's, amazing. it's an intriguing, it is. Daryl, you had your hand up yeah, too. Yeah, related to the previous question. Yeah.
3: What, what uh, verse is it that specifically uh, deals with the, the point that you're making that we, we grow, it's a process, well, I think the,
0: the place to begin uh, starting uh, our thinking about that is Genesis 2, That's the That's the beginning place for it. I call this, and I've written on this, I call this, uh, one and two, the creation ordinance of God. That the, the, Those two chapters, actually the first three chapters, excuse me, are really the creation ordinance of God because God creates and he creates the ethical standards and ordinances by which we are to live. Uh, and I mean, there's so much in those two chapters. It's just really, um, and we we either approach those chapters in a in a kind of a shallow manner, or we approach those as uh, often critics do. Well, it's just a story, and don't it's not all it's telling us is one truth. God created everything,
3: California.
0: but it isn't. I mean, that's it's it's much deeper than that. It's so, and I think. You have to make a decision, even about Genesis 1-2. This is way beyond what we're talking about. But the the, the language of Genesis 1-2, it's very profound. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. Okay, that's probably a title. In Genesis 2, in darkness, it's without form. It's void. None of those words are positive words. None of those words are positive words. So what does that mean? We have to work through what that means, and that's beyond where we are but that's some of the stuff I'm looking forward to doing. All right, the three principles. Got it? Well, I got it, but I mean, you see what he's doing. He's, 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 he's doing something which the Bible often does. It lays down foundational principles that become the basis of sound doctrine that then affects how we live. So a principle you see in, in the Bible is sound doctrine produces godly living. If you understand God and understand what he's doing, then that should affect how you live. So therefore Paul's done that. Now what's he say to them? Stop depriving one another. <laughs> so you got it all wrong. Some false teachers saying you come to Christ now celibacy because we've got to deny the evil body so the good spirit can be released, which is just dualistic silliness. Paul says, Stop it. Stop that. Except by agreement that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So Paul's saying, I can conceive of a possibility where you, as husband and wife, agree we're going to engage in a time of some prayer and fasting, and we're going to just by agreement, we're not going to have sexual relations for a couple of days. Because we're going to focus. Good, okay. But he says, Come together lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know yourself. Be wise. If by mutual agreement you're, you're not going to have sex, don't, don't let it last. And that is good, sound advice. And I say this by way of concession, verse 7, I assume you verse 6, not a command. I mean, I'm not commanding this. I'm just saying if, if you feel the need, emotionally feel, the need to enter a period of temporary celibacy, that's okay, but I'm certainly not commanding that. And then verse 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, he's going to say something like that down in verse 8. He's going to say something like that later, which leads us to a conclusion that is very difficult because we're not exactly sure but presumably Paul is not married and it is probable that he's not married because he's a widower as we will he will allude to this in verse 8 although we can't uh, be certain about that and so he's saying I would prefer that you be single and not married but Each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and one in that. And the word for gift there is charisma. It is the word used in the New Testament for spiritual gifts. So Paul is saying something to us. There is such a thing as a spiritual gift of celibacy. Some have it, some don't. Now, he's going to say in verse 9, the test of celibacy is if you burn with lust, you don't have the gift to get married. But that he's not there yet. That's that's another topic in verse 8 and 9. So, what's he saying? He's saying, based on the three principles which he lays down in 2, 3, and 4, knock off this celibacy stuff. Stop depriving one another. Now, as a concession, if you need to do that, make sure it's mutual, You agree upon it, but don't let it last because you're opening yourself up to Satan's temptation. So come together quickly. Don't let this last for the obvious reason. And I kind of wish everybody were in the situation I was in where he's not married or whatever he means. by. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But not everybody has that gift. Not everybody has that charisma from God. And that's how he ends it.
2: Jim, uh, I don't know, maybe you got into this before I got into of your class today. Uh, But um, <coughs> in marriage, uh, sex is a very, you know, sexual intercourse is a very high priority for men, and it's not the same priority for women, although it's, you know, it's up there. but uh, it's, it's, it's in the- Do you
0: know that for a fact, or is that just intuitive on your part? <laughs> I'm just kidding, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> 45
2: years old. Okay. uh, But anyhow, um, I think that we can use that as a weapon as men. Oh, sure. Saying, you know, all right, I'll sleep upstairs. You know what? Um, I'm going to stay up. That's a form of depriving, which is a Mm -hmm. violation of Scripture. And it's so important in the marriage. It's not the primary mover. But it's important that I mean I guess I'm making a statement here and I shouldn't be, but if Paul would have if, if we would have God's way in our life, we would probably not want to use that as a weapon but as a way of reassuring our spouse of our love. Wouldn't we serving yeah, absolutely. one another? Yeah. Sure. This is true but I don't want to force myself, but yet at the same time, we come together. And um, I think, I, I don't know, it just seems like my wife slays me. I've stopped arguing with her because she just kills me every time. Because she says, says I love you, and I just can't handle that.
3: Mm. I just think, all right, I,
2: I, just, all right, I love you, too. <laughs> you know, so we've stopped that. But... Um, I think reassuring a wife at a time sometimes is helpful that we truly love her, and that's the yeah, ultimate expression is sort of an outgrowth yeah, of reconciliation. It. In a way it's not always that going to happen, but I think we should be.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I certainly affirm what you said. Uh, it is, uh, when you look at those three principles that n- necessarily concludes that we never use sex as a weapon, we never use it as a means of manipulation and control, it is always to be a, the crowning dimension of how we express love and communication with our partner, our, our wife. In this case, we're all men. And to look at it any other way is is stepping outside of God's ideal. Now the reality is this is something that you do. You have to learn this. Uh, there are two things I think that are really important, in, in, practically speaking and applicationally speaking. One is uh, Gary Chapman has written a book called on the Love Languages, and if you've never read that or you don't know, have that in your home, you should have that. That is a very, very, very important book. Because he he st- he stipulates there are five major love languages, uh, and you have to read it to to understand what he's saying. But I share this with my premarital people too that a man and a woman understand love differently. Now, not and that's one of the things that when you come together it becomes such a powerful dynamic. But it can be a lot of different ways in which your partner understands not only how you say it but what you do. And you have, part of our job is to find out what is that? Yeah. What, what is that with our spouse? See, this is that process. When, I, when a young couple comes uh, and, and is married and they say, I do, and they have their, you know, their first night together, presuming, assuming that abstinence has been their commitment up to that point, then they're beginning a journey. It, and, and it's in every facet of life, including the marriage bed. And so what has to occur then is you have to begin to, you become a student of one another. And if you are so self-centered you don't care about your partner, well, that relationship isn't going to last very long. It may not end in divorce, but it's going to be a barren marriage. I'm saying all that because Chapman helps us to understand some of that. And we just have to be a student of each other. You have to learn what that is. And you have to find ways... As Fred was intimating there, find ways, though, way you are constantly sending the message, verbally and non verbally I love you. You are the most important person in my life. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Pardon? Because
1: some people, you know, my, if I buy my wife gifts and things, she gets mad at me. Anniversary, flowers, she, that's, that's all, she calls them junk gifts. Yeah. But if I say it, she's an auditory, yeah. so yeah. if I say I love her, and I use that modality, yep. Really big. I'm a kinesthetic, so non-sexual touch is really important yeah. for me. We know that we've been through this yeah. stuff, it's, so that you, you live by the platinum rule. Yeah, you do it it's, others as they want to be done.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's such an important part of helping young couples and even helping mature couples to understand what the marriage commitment's all about. And unfortunately and tragically and quite horrifically, everything about our culture doesn't say that. You know I mean? It's just is sending the wrong message to these young kids. And they're so confused and they get married for the wrong... These are broad statements, obviously there are many exceptions, but they're married for the wrong reasons or they're not even sure why they're getting married, but it, 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 instead of really helping them to get prepared for what is ahead of them. And that don't expect instantaneous perfection and eternal bliss it probably isn't going to happen and I think the second thing is it's so important in the sexual dimension of the of, of the marriage of the marriage bed is to understand the incredible difference between a man and a woman when Peggy and we used to do marriage seminars but uh, since she got sick we don't do those anymore but um, we would have a pretty significant section on intimacy because uh, we would do a lot with the students and we'd lock them in the rooms down there so they couldn't leave for a weekend. You know, literally, they would not be able to leave. We would really focus on that thing. And so we took us, and my wife came up with an idea, and it was really good. And so at our sweetheart banquet, when we closed it out, we'd have a favor. It was a little doily, is that what that's called? You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, Peggy did this I think that's what it's called Anyway, at each plate, man and woman, everybody's plate would be a match and a piece of charcoal and it was to remind them of one of the important premises of how God has made us different in the sexual dimension of our relationship, the man is like a match and it's over whereas the woman is like charcoal it gets red hot, but it takes a while and then it continues to be warm, Peggy would say, enough so we could cook some marshmallows, too. Now, that you have to really follow through the analogy. If you, if you don't get it, I can't help you. But it's to, for the man to understand patience, be other-centered, take time, take care, so that you can maximize the principle of mutual rights, principle of mutual duty, the principle of mutual authority. Your wife, and the same thing for the the wife. You have to understand your husband's like a match, and so it's just that's you grow in the understand and you grow in how this is going to work and look for you. Doctor weed has a lot of suggestions in the book on that, but you have to. Just, it's part of preparing for what God. I mean, God created this. As you, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave the room when a husband and wife have sex. As a Christian, do you know what I mean? It it absolutely. I think it absolutely pleases the Lord to the ultimate when he sees a husband and wife enjoying this part because that's he created it. This isn't a product, a process, a product of evolution. God created this. That's what Genesis two twenty four means. And well, I'm getting. I'm like I'm preaching here, but anyway, this is so foundational, and we just. Sometimes, and I I don't know if this is true in your churches, but sometimes we gloss over this. And we shouldn't. It just, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of preparation. It takes a lot of teaching. It takes patience. It takes endurance. But God's into that. All those words define God. So we should be patient and enduring and have a long-run view. and, And you see God begin to do over time, what you want as our creator to make your marriage, Ephesians 5.32 marriage, which is what we often say. All right. This is, boy, I didn't know that would go down this route, but is everybody okay? Let's look at 8 and 9. The question here, because of the word he uses that's translated unmarried, and the word widows in verse 8, the word unmarried is a normal word, not always, but a rather normal word used in the New Testament for widower. So he's addressing a widower and a widow, those who have lost their spouse. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I that it not, here, you cannot prove this but it lends strong credence to the idea that paul was a widower because he was on the sanhedrin it tells us that in the book of i forget the exact chapter there in acts but because he was on the sanhedrin near the end of acts i can't remember which one of the chapters it's got to be around 26 or 27 but anyway and because he was a Pharisee, it would have been highly unusual, not impossible, but it would have been highly unusual for him not to be married. I mean, it, 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 and that's still even true today. Uh, spiritual leadership in Judaism isn't celibacy, like it would evolve later on in the Catholic Church, where you know spiritual leadership are always celibate. That's always been kind of a rule from, from the beginnings of the institutionalized church. But anyway... That would not have been the case in Judaism. So in all probability, Paul was married. And because of what he's saying and how he describes it in verse 8, probably, but we can't prove it. We just don't know that for certain. He's a widower. And he's, he's going to say later on in this chapter, chapter 7, as he's talking to engaged couples, he says, you know, I would really prefer that you not get married. He gives them three reasons why. But if you choose to marry, it's okay. Okay. So that's what he's doing here. I would prefer that you're not married. Times are tough. You get married, you have the issue of divided loyalty. Now you love the Lord and your spouse, and it's divided. It's not wrong. That's the way God created it, but I want you to understand that. Now my preference is don't get married. But, verse 9, if you now not have self-control, marry. For it's better to marry than burn. And Now, the old Baptist preacher used to say, that's burn in hell. That's not the right way to understand that. It's burn with lust. It's the metaphor of, if you can't control your lust, you don't have the gift, so get married. I mean, this isn't rocket science. He gives his preference. I really think it would be better if you don't get married. Things and He's going to talk later on in the chapter why. But if you get married, that's Okay. And the thing is, if you can't control your lust, then get married. So, I mean, um, in this chapter, Paul is, he is, in, in some of his writings, he always kind of draws things out and gets to the point. Here he doesn't draw things out. He gets right to the point. It's very categorical. If you struggle with lust, you don't have the gift to get married, and at the institution that I used to lead, I mean the guys are their, their hormones are raging like all guys in nineteen twenty twenty one are raging, and yet just if you it's really important if you struggle with us, then it is important for you to understand that God has created an institution for you to deal with this. and it's called marriage. So your mission in life is to find her. And I used to say to the guys when I speak in chapel, if you don't have a wife, find one. And I was kidding, of course, but I still got guys guys email her. I found one. You know, it's like <laughs> ten years later. I found one. You know, I found okay, now the next section, which is uh, what is that ten through uh, uh, eleven. This is hard because. where you all are coming from but he's laying down a pretty significant governing principle here and it is very clear that he's talking to Christians he's talking to believers so in the sheet that I gave you the simple question must have been Paul is divorced between Christians permissible the operative part of the, the question is the prepositional phrase between Christians Now we're sure he's addressing just Christians Christians because in verse 12 he says to the rest. And he talks there about a believer who's married to an unbeliever. So the assumption of verse 10 and 11 is he's talking to a husband and a wife who are believers. But to the married I give instructions. Not I but the Lord. Now All that means, and it's very important we see it that way because of what I'll say in verse 12, he's saying Jesus spoke to this, and I am just summarizing what Jesus taught. Jesus taught it in Matthew 19, Jesus taught it in Mark 10, Jesus taught it in Luke 16. He's teaching the same thing, there are just the three passages where you see it. So Paul is, what he's doing as an apostle is he's just summarizing what Christ taught. That the wife should not leave her husband, and the word there's carazzo, it's divorce. That's what it means. It's not just separation; it's meaning sever the marriage. But if she does not, if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. So, if the gal would leave, it's a separation. She shouldn't get married again. And the husband should not send his wife away. Now, send his wife away is legal language for divorce in both the Old Testament and in the Greco-Roman world. Because so often, because these were very patriarchal societies, women didn't even have the right to divorce. Men were always the ones. This language, send his wife away, is legal language of the first and actually even earlier, but it's the legal language of the ancient world. So, and that's it. Then the next verse, but to the rest. He's going to move on to another category. So, this is what's difficult because, and I say difficult only because it's so blatantly categorical. But the governing premise is, he's writing to believers, Why do you think he's so categorical? Now, obviously, if a divorce occurs, the grace and forgiveness of God is always there. But this is the teaching. Why is, why is the Bible, and this isn't the only place Jesus says the same thing, but why do you think the Bible is so clear on its teaching concerning divorce for Christians? absolutely how paul puts it in ephesians 5 that marriage is a covenant and it is a paradigm for the world ephesians 532 after paul has described the role relationships and responsibilities in marriage he says but this is a mystery and i'm speaking of Christ in the church. And you read the first part of the verse before the semicolon, yeah, it is a mystery. Tell me about it. You know? But he said, when he used the word mystery, he's, he says this is indicative of something. It's a deep meaning to marriage. There's a deep purpose to marriage. It is a paradigm of how Christ relates to the church, how the church relates to Christ. Because you go back in Ephesians 5 and look at the role responsibilities and differences, everything is measured against Christ. A man loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Boy, there's a high standard. That's right, that's the whole point. So he concludes, that's why I often, uh, when Peggy and I would do these things, and even when I preached on marriage, I say our goal should be to have an Ephesians 5.32 marriage. What does that mean? In the words of Paul, where our marriages reflect or a paradigm, an image uh, would be another word, an archetype for how Christ and the church relate to one another. That's, wow, all of a sudden you start to see that marriage really takes on a very significant meaning to God and a very significant meaning. I think part of the conclusion that, and I think this is where Paul's going with that thought in Ephesians 5, is when the world, who doesn't see things the way God sees things, When the world sees a marriage like that, they shake their heads in amazement. How do you guys do it? How do you live that way? Answer, because of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm not being flippant about that. That is precisely, there's a declarative, uh, proclamational, I'm making it sound really, but it is a declarative, uh, uh, proclamational dimension of marriage. And certainly at the very least, Scripture is saying to us, don't take it lightly. As a matter of fact, more profoundly, take it very, very seriously. It is the most important institution God ever created. The first institution he created, and it's the most important institution he created. Second most important institution he created is the church. Third most important institution he created is the state. Each one has a different stewardship responsibility before God, but that's the, that's the foundational one. And anybody that sees it any other way, it, it just doesn't. And just intu- intuition, common sense tells us that if the family collapses, really what's left there's not much else left. I mean, because everything is linked to strong family relationships, strong husband and wife relationship, strong parent family relationships. And if that if that doesn't exist, there's no glue. There's nothing. And it well, I don't. I, I should maybe say nothing. But you, you, the the consequences of that are are really dramatic. Joanna has. Um, she teaches fifth grade, and she has a, a a little boy by the name of William. His mother lives in Florida. His father lives in California. Who's taking care of this little guy? An aunt. And there are a couple. He's not always sure which whom he's going to sleep with each night. Is it going to be my aunt, or is it going to be a neighbor? I mean, it's just this little guy. Last or no, it would have been would have been two weeks ago. He didn't want to come to school, and he wouldn't go in the building. So the principal went out, and tried to talk to teachers, and was like, "Do you know how they got him into school? They had to call the police for a fifth-grade kid." Because there was nowhere else for this kid to go, and so the policeman had to escort him into school. And so he comes into Joanna's classroom, beaming. I got delivered to class day by a policeman. Oh my goodness, what kind of a lesson is that? I mean, what what do you do with that? You know, he's all excited about it, and you say, oh, "William, you don't understand. This is just unbelievably dysfunctional. What? You're not going to be escorted every day by a policeman." You know. But it, it just has, he just has nothing. There's nothing stable in this little boy's life. And yet, yet there is, you just multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands, and you kind of see, you know, maybe God was right that the most important institution is the family. And he's given us the job descriptions. And then he's given us the power through the Spirit to do all this. But if any one of those pieces is missing, and we see in our culture today an awful lot of pieces are missing. So anyway, I'm getting I'm I'm really getting way off the subject here. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think where am I supposed to be? I guess getting into verse 12. But Ed, did you have I thought you had. To go. Okay? I was just going to ask-
3: Yeah. The focus on this passage and what marriage is really supposed to institute. This is a model that, wow, when you see that thing being result, if you're committed to, to death, to part, yeah. the motivation should be there to work it out, to yeah. be forgiven.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this, uh, and that's why it, it is really, quite frankly, how amazingly short this is. Too. Ver- I mean, it's short. I mean, there's no, well, no, let's think about this and think, it's just very, very short, very clear cut, very categorical. And I do think it is because of, this reflects, and, and he says that, not I, but the Lord, this reflects Jesus, this reflects God's view of marriage. This is the ideal. But I do think it's important that in somehow we communicate, because people in, in their sinful choices and sometimes the divorce can result, so then what, how do we deal with that in the church? Because the reality is we are going to have people that are going to divorce. And tragically, and that's just the way. You, ha- you cannot send the message that this is the unpardonable sin. You, we can't send that message. So what we have to be always doing is trying to chat. That's why I, if I can go back for a minute to something I feel quite strongly about, that's why I believe it is so imperative that we spend a lot of time on premarital counseling. And we just, we really do, we, we spend a lot of time on it, helping to prepare young people as best we possibly can for God's ideal and the resources God gives and the resources the church can have and all of that to be able to have the end result being Ephesians five thirty two marriages. But if, tragically, a breakup occurs, the grace and forgiveness of God can cover that. I mean I want people still in the church I don't want them to because they're not going to find solace anywhere else <laughs> so anyway but it's hard it's just so what's anyway. the likelihood in that of like you know convincing a couple that
4: comes to you for primarily counseling to you know get them called off call off call, call, it, call it off like you know you were not making money. because you know quite no. sometimes you know who knows why but
0: Yeah. Married, yeah. And, you
4: know, they, they do like it, obviously for yeah. And uh, you know, so they think well the thing to do is get married. So they come to you, a guy like you, and they say, Well, you know, want to get married here and you start to you know figure out that these two are they're getting along now. But five years from now they're gonna Yeah. Yeah, so sorry. So how, the- how do you how do you reconcile that, you know, with what the Bible says? Practicality. By the time they come to you, they're going to do everything they possibly can to convince a guy like you that they should get married. I'm kind of talk about my own personal experience. Um, I mean, you know, I've been married twice. I was married once when I was you know, very young, and uh, you know, the priest Catholic. Man, and the priest, you know, he I don't think he talked us out of it necessarily. You know, uh, the situation was then I mean, specifically, we went to the stuff that the Catholics do something. I can't remember what it is, but there's like you know formal
0: well part of that comes from one of, one of the teachings of the church that marriage is a sacrament it's it's very very sacred very important and so they they work hard to try to make that clear I, I do not I, I it, it's been a long time since I've spent any time talking with a priest about how they do some of their counseling and it, it depends on the priest I mean mm-hmm. like anybody some are very very committed to it some are not how they do it. But, uh, I mean, I like the concept that they have, but I can't always comment on the practicality of how they try to make sure. In the history of all, I've in all the counseling I've done, and mean I am not a therapist. I'm talking right. about pastoral type of counseling, which is premarital counseling, an example of that. But in all of the years, and that's like 30, about 34 years of doing those kinds of things, I've only had one couple that made the decision they're not going to get married. Right.
4: So let's back up to our kids. Yeah. How do we instill in them? I mean, yeah. you know, I, I do one little thing. I, I pray for them, not enough, but I pray for their future. Styles.
0: That's good. That's so really good, good not, to do that.
4: Maybe I'm sending the wrong message. Yep. You know, we haven't even gotten the last name I you want a nine year old know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I'm just wondering how, how do we really, you know, what, what kind of things does the Bible say about what we should put on our heart about that? Yeah. On how to pick them.
0: Yeah, A couple things I think are really important practically. One, I love what you said. Peggy and I did that. To pray for your kid's spouse. I mean, start now. If they're nine, just think of all the years you can be praying for. Mm -hmm. Second, I think it's really important if you can do this. There are several of these out there. The one Peggy and I used called Passport to Purity. You take the kids away for a weekend. You know know the story. I think thirdly, it, it is really important that um, they see modeled in your family, you know, in other words, you and your wife, they see modeled a, fam- a husband and wife where there are the kinds of things that we're talking about here. I mean, not that they see you have sex, I don't mean that, but they see mom and dad love each other. They see that, they see the expressions of that, and they see that it's okay to show that kind of stuff. Again, I'm not talking about sex, but affection and holding hands. and I mean, that mom and dad, there's a lot of the way they express that. That's a good thing to see. They see healthy mm-hmm. relationships. And I think as best, this is a very deep conviction of mine. It's, we're working on that in the church I'm involved in. A huge, huge part of youth ministry has to be focused on this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Not exclusive, it's just, there's going to be a lot of intentionality about this mm-hmm. because, as you all know, there is no other place where the next generation is going to see healthy marriages mm-hmm. than in the Christian home and in the church. They're not seeing anywhere else. Can you think of any other place they're going to find it? Mm-hmm. I mean, just you can't find it. So it, it just seems to me, Dave, we have to have lots of conversations. About, because truth is both taught and caught. Truth is both, it's it's formally instruction that goes on, but they have to see it. Nobody picks up hypocrisy better than teens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just nobody's more sensitive mm-hmm. to that.
1: Part of love is working through conflicts. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's you just... see that, you know, there's, it's not just fake. It's, yeah. side of happiness.
0: It's, like, there's I don't... That you'd want to work through. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, 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 Dave, I, I don't know if i no, There's just a couple of suggestions real quick. Uh, yeah, it's just... Um, we, at our church, we're really focusing on this a lot, what this is going to look like. And I, uh, it's not easy. It's just, you know. Guys, I've got to get 10 out of it. I've got to quit. So um, let me pray here. Lord, we're thankful for this time and great discussion, great questions. This is Applicational Truth trying to apply God's word to our lives. And Lord, we all, in each one of our lives, uh, each one of our situations around this table, there are shortcomings. There are probably some failures, but your grace covers that. Our goal is to not dump on each other and hammer each other. Our goal is to understand and to grow. And uh, Lord, I just uh, pray that there was some clarity of what is very seriously taught here by Paul. This is the transformational stuff of Scripture. This is rubber meets the road kind of truth. This is uh, the stuff that makes Christians different. Not superior or elite, but different because we're seeking, we're seeking to live what the Creator has laid out for us. What our Savior has made possible for us. What our, the Spirit who indwells us through His power has made possible for us to truly have Ephesians 5.32 marriages. So I pray for the men around the table and that what we've discussed has been beneficial uh, and helpful to each one of their, their lives and, and their marriages if they're married. So I commit each one of them to you. I pray for Woody, and uh, I'm not quite sure all that uh, has gone on with this surgery. We trust it has gone well, it, what the doctors wanted to do, they were able to achieve. And we trust now that uh, Woody is on the path to healing and restoration. We we do really pray for him. I know that was a pretty big thing, as I understood it. And we pray for all the other things in the lives of these men. They're, they're busy guys with lots of responsibilities. And in all that we do and say, we always seek to pray, Lord, help us to represent you well. And we pray this in Christ's name.